Welcome to the Coast Talk Talk podcast. I'm your host, Nick Swinmurn, otherwise known as Coast Talk. I've been a lifelong entrepreneur. Whether it's sports, tech, food, fitness, I've got a bunch of passions. I've also been fortunate enough to invest in some of my favorite sports teams. Along the way, I've met a bunch of great people, whether athletes, entrepreneurs, executives, and we hope to dive into their stories on our show. You'll hear backstories, successes, and failures throughout our discussions. Please subscribe, rate, and review if you enjoy listening to the show. This is Coast Talk Talk. Welcome to Coast Talk Talk. Today, we're joined by Lisa Friedman, president and co-founder of Quadrata. Lisa, excited to have you on the show. Looking forward to uh, chatting. Thank you so much, Nick. I'm also excited to be here. Awesome. So if you want to start, um, usually start with a quick uh, intro, background. You can start as early as you want. And then we'll just uh, we'll jump into the conversation. Sure. Well, I joined my co-founder, Fabrice Shang, to start Quadrata because we believe that by bringing identity compliance and reputation on chain, we can enable much broader adoption of Web3 opportunities and also more nuanced use cases. Just a little bit on my background. I came to Web3 from um, traditional finance, where I was one of the early partners at PAMCO and led its European practice as the CEO of PAMCO Europe. Uh, at that point, we were putting together hedge fund solutions on behalf of institutions. And so growing need and interest in blockchain technology. Uh, however, we also see some obstacles that need to be addressed before institutions can come in and size. And so, uh, hence, we set out on this journey to bring more information and data in the privacy-preserving manner uh, to blockchain and uh, really broaden the scope of what it can support. Awesome. So, so way back when, where did you, when did you first become interested in finance and privacy and data and things like that? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's interesting. So I actually grew up in Russia and um, I studied mathematics in high school. And in the, in the early 90s, uh, it was quite interesting what Soviet Union and Russia were going through at the time, or I guess no more, no more Soviet Union, but just the beginning post, uh, post-Soviet Union collapse. And so this whole idea of applying mathematics to the new area of, uh, uh, free markets and, um, non-centralized economy was quite interesting to me. So I started studying actually back in Russia, the financial academy and then quickly realized that if I wanted to stay in the country or to um, uh, to go and explore opportunities elsewhere, I probably needed to um, learn some other language than Russian. And so I went, to, I came to Los Angeles for what I thought was going to be a year of studying English and then stayed and decided to explore finance actually in the country which has promoted free economy for quite some time. And so I went to UCLA and uh, back to business school at UCLA, really honing in my theoretical knowledge on finance. And then in early 2000s, um, I knew that I wanted to uh, be in finance, but I didn't quite know in which area of it. And there's corporate finance and um, investment management and all 
in all sorts of other areas. And so I, I was spending a lot of my time in business school, uh, speaking with PR students and um, professors, guest speakers about what it is that they were doing on a day-to-day basis. And at the time, hedge funds uh, were more of a novelty in the investment management space and finance. And I tried I tried it for the summer. I joined um, as employee number 23, uh, Pamco, which was a local company here in, um, in Southern California, and really enjoyed um, the innovation that was going to the space and the ability as a fresh graduate to really learn from people who have been in finance, different areas of finance for many years and are now sort of concentrating all that knowledge and putting together strategies and tools that allow them to deliver the most value um, uh, to their clients. And so I found it uh, to be a very interesting journey. And um, as a fund of hedge funds, we worked with all kinds of uh, hedge fund strategies and also a number of institutional investors who at the time were just starting to make allocations to this alternative asset class. And then as uh, I continued my journey with the firm, uh, the industry matured. And so a lot of institutions also had in-house resources to allow them to put together uh, uh, hedge fund portfolios. And so at the time we were then supplementing their exposures with um diversifying strategies or uh, or allocations. And so it, it's been it's been very interesting. And what attracted me to hedge funds originally was this innovation. And it's actually a very similar theme, which uh, led me to switching into uh, more of a fintech blockchain type opportunity. I see a lot of innovation happening in the space. Uh, there is uh, tremendous talent uh, in the industry but also quite a lot yet to be built. And so it's a really fun place to be right now. Albeit quite yeah. old. <laughs> <laughs> so you, once you, when you left Russia, you thought you were coming for a year to LA and you just stayed and that's, you've never. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. So <laughs> uh, good point. So I came for what I thought was going to be a year and then I decided to continue my studies by the time I, I, uh, Finished with my school schooling, I joined this company, Pamco, and then I spent three years again in Southern California and went to London for what I thought was going to be two to three years (laughs) and then stayed for almost 11 and then came back here. So you could see a trend. Um, And I guess in in this new world um, of working remotely, we're no longer associate with one place. It enables all of us to explore different geographies and, um, and that's a really fun yeah. uh, possibility. So do you think like you used a lot of words like fun and creative and all these things for, for finance and, and, and you know, <laughs> kind of things that to me as an outsider, I think like, Oh, you know, it feels like it's very much like, uh, here's what happened. Here's what's happened. And based on here's what's happened, here's what we think is going to happen. Would, would, did you consider yourself more like, analytical when you were going through this process or were you creative and, ex- and you saw like a creative path in there? Like I, I, I'm always curious like how, how much creativity is involved and how much freedom people have to say, hey, let's try something different. That's a very interesting question because I've always been solutions focused and really um, 
working with investors and clients on creating something bespoke and custom for their needs, there was definitely a lot of room for creativity. But also, as you said, finance is quite analytical. And as I mentioned, I went to mathematical high school. So I do like kind of the simplicity and the satisfaction of having the right answer, which we don't always have in real life. Mm -hmm. And so being able to use the analytical skills combined with interactions with people and really and institutions and understanding their needs, um, that allows for creativity uh, when putting together solutions. So I, yeah. you know, I've done a lot of work with younger uh, participants to the industry and even students um, explaining uh, and, and sort of uh, debunking the myth of uh, finance being born in my mind. <laughs> yeah. What do you think about the model of like, like at the high school level, right? Having like uh, an academy that's going to focus on mathematics and different people focusing on different things that early, whereas here, everyone just kind of focuses on everything and eventually kind of figures it out. feels like a lot of times you hear, the, you hear these stories, even from talking to different people on the podcast, I realized when people were identified younger as having a, a talent or an interest in a certain area, not only did it help like push them that way, but it also like made them feel good about themselves because they were able to identify something they were they were good at. And I sat there sometimes thinking, we should do more of that. We should you know, either ask people, what are you interested in or what are you good at? And push them in that direction because they can always change change it later, right? Like, how do you think that affected your, affected you being, being kind of like focused at such a young age? It's interesting because as, as you pointed out, the educational systems in Russia or Soviet Union back then and the U.S. and, and England for that, um, for that no. matter, are quite different. So what, what I found is that in the U.S., because kids are exposed to a lot of general education. It allows them to sort of be more flexible later in their careers to try different things, right? And as we know, some industries go out of fashion or even existence over, the, over our work lives. So having that flexibility is, is important. And another thing that I, I think is... Um, very positive about the, the education here in the U.S. is experimental learning and this focus on trying something out. And if you're not good at it, maybe trying something else and being exposed to a lot of different things. Yeah. In Russia, you do develop, or you used to, I'm not sure how things are right now, but um, um, you do develop a lot of specialization very early on. Um, you're still exposed to a number of things. So growing up, you know, I had five years of chemistry, seven years of physics and so forth. So you, you don't really have a choice. So you didn't have a choice back then. Yeah. Um, and then if there is uh, a skill that you have um, uh, more, uh, you know, you're, you're stronger at, you are very much um, pushed in that direction, right? So at the age of 15, 16, uh, you have to decide what it is that you want, want to dive really deep into. And then once you go to university, it's that subject that is your core subject for five years. And then coming out of university, you're quite specialized. And so then in Soviet Union times, um, you would 
be put in a position. You don't even get to choose your job. You mm. could be sent to any city in, in Soviet Union and you wow. could be given a role and then you stay in that role sometimes for 30 years, sometimes for longer. So yeah. that model worked quite well. So you specialize, you come in, you learn on the job and then you stay in it and, and uh, continue leveraging that knowledge for many years. Yeah. So what that results in is high, high specialization, but then if something changes, it's much more difficult than to, to turn. So I think, I mean, I don't, I don't think there is necessarily one model. I do appreciate having um, strong analytical skills given, uh, given the mathematical background that I received as a child. And I very much encourage that for my children as well. Um, I do find that it's helpful to supplement sort of the core middle school education, elementary school education by additional um, exposure to math. Um, But other than that, it's just, you know, different approaches. Yeah. I I think there's something there, though, with, with at an early age feeling like you're good at something and then being pushed in that direction. And there's probably proving to yourself that you're good at something makes you probably more willing to try other things. You know, there's a lot of, I feel like there's a lot of like, uh, I don't, I don't know what I'm good at. I don't know what to do. There's so much opportunity here and they're just kind of people sitting there waiting for something. So it's interesting, interesting, um, approach. Did you, um, did you, when did you first have like thoughts of like, I want to have my own company. I want to be an entrepreneur. Were you, or were you more looking at it? Like I'm going to, you know, I enjoy working in this larger company. I've been here early. I'm going to stick with it. Well, I, um, as I said, I joined my, the company that I joined out of business school um, when it had 20 some people. And so working in a smaller environment where A, you're wearing a lot of hats, B, you know, every single person in the company, you're all pulling in the same direction. Um, uh, promoting the culture of internal collaboration and external competitiveness. All those aspects um, I I very much enjoyed. I didn't necessarily think that I must co-found something uh, um, to to be happy, Uh, but um, I do like contributing to the growth of the organization. And so that... um, that aspect uh, is very important to me. And so I've seen my previous company go from 20 people to over 200 people. And um, uh, this was great to still be able to know everybody across. Um, at the time, I left eight offices globally. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I really, I really um, have this feeling that your role is very meaningful in the context of the bigger organization, which is not always uh, possible um, at the very large firms, especially yeah. at the beginning of the career. Yeah. So, and then when did you get to the point where you're like, I, I see an opportunity. I feel like it's time. I should, I should go out and do this. Uh, during, during the quarantine, I suppose, post COVID quarantine, I was looking for the next step in my career. And, um, I was considering, I I was offered a job at a very large asset management firm, um, uh, focused on growing the institutional presence in the U S for their solutions. And, uh, at the same time, I was approached by a friend, um, at Sprint Labs from which Quadrat spun out. 
and they had this idea of leveraging the technology that they're using internally for private networks to bring identity on chain. Uh, And uh, one of the goals, as I said, is enabling broader institutional adoption. And given my uh, background in working with some of the largest institutions globally, it was a nice complement to the skills that my co-founder brings, which are very technically uh, focused, where he was one of the earliest developers in Ethereum and was the head of blockchain technology um, at Spring Labs previously. And so it wasn't an easy decision, I can tell you that, even though I I took a lot of um, sort of... um, consideration um, when I made it, it still had some surprises along the way, you know, just how difficult it may be um, uh, getting a bank account uh, during quarantine or setting up in different states now that we have remote workforce. So there's things that, uh, you know, you just, or I at least didn't think of um, as being, you know, time consuming and, uh, you know, perhaps less exciting. uh, they they uh, they did ended up taking some time, uh, but I you know I haven't regretted my decision. I've learned a lot. I'm working with an amazing team here at Quadrata, and um, also I, I meet a lot of great people externally. So I I'm very happy that um, that I chose this path. What was the most surprising thing so far? What was the the thing you were you weren't expecting about it was the shift from being early to being you know one of the co-founders? Right. I think one of the things that was surprising to me is how how quickly things change in this space. So, for example, when we started um, when we started on this journey uh, about a year and a half ago now, uh, when we spoke to some of the leaders in the permissionless space and permissionless DeFi, the the response to KYC on chain, privacy preserving identity on chain was very different. And so we knew there was interest from institutions who today cannot enter permissionless DeFi because they being uh, regulated entities can't come and go uh, with bad actors and need to mitigate that risk. But from, from sort of the um, movers and shakers of permissionless DeFi, the response was very different. And then today we see the likes of Aave coming up with Aave Arc and Compound with Compound Treasury. So I think there is this shift in organizations understanding that if we really want blockchain to power real financial services of the future and a meaningful part of those financial services, we do need institutions to be able to comfortably come in. And they do need different types of solutions than what individuals uh, have been able to do today if they're very technologically savvy and they're coming from all over the world without um, the need to identify themselves at some point in the process. Yeah. So is is Quadrata, is it more, uh, is it focused on uh, companies and, and them implementing it? Or like, do I need a Quadrata passport? Like, will I be, as an individual, going out and getting one? Or will, or will a company that I'm, I'm working with, they'll, I'll, I'll onboard through them in order to... Right. Uh, I encourage you to go on our website and try the process for yourself. Yes, you can mint a Quadrata passport. It should, it should take less than 90 seconds if everything goes according to the plan. <laughs> Uh, entities too uh, can get onboarded. Uh, it takes a little bit more time given more complicated uh, structures of the entity ownership and so forth. Wow. Um, 
but ultimately it does serve two purposes, right? As an individual, what you may want to do is leverage your reputation to get access to um, more capital efficient use cases, for example, right? So today, most of DeFi, for example, is um, uh, uh, over collateralized lending, right? So you have to already have money to borrow money. Now, in the off-chain world, uh, you may have some collateral in certain situations, like when you take a mortgage, but then you may also get an unsecured loan. And so, for example, we are working with TransUnion on bringing off-chain credit information on-chain on behalf of their customers. So you, as a person, can choose to leverage your high credit score and then uh, ultimately get access to under-collateralized loans on-chain or unsecured loans on-chain and so forth. So we're very, again, as an economist, I'm very cognizant of the fact that they're you know, economic drivers frequently for people to do things. And so, you know, if you get better rates or you need to post lower collateral, then you're likely um, to onboard and go through the KYC and identity process. And then do I, so if I'm using my identity to apply for something and I've connected it through my passport, so it knows like, you know, hey, this, this identity on chain is connected to these this real life credit score or these real life assets. Would I apply? Like, would I be applying, for example, as Nick, or would I be applying as Coast Hawk or whatever my my virtual identity is? Right. Well, actually, um, we do not post any personal personally identifiable information on chain for the reason that there is a lot of transparency and. You probably don't want everyone to know that Nick has a high credit score and then has a bunch of NFTs and then has millions in Ethereum or what have you. So it's really um, more of a situation where you onboard once. So you do show your um, government-issued ID to uh, what we call a passport issue or data verifier in the network. Quadrata itself does not see your underlying personal information. And then uh, you get what we call an AML risk score. So your name is run against uh, different sanctions lists and so forth. And and your wallet is compared to blacklisted wallets and the distance away from them. And then you issue this AML risk score that then can be consumed natively on chain by, by other smart contracts. So when we're integrating with the applications, they can decide this wallet which they don't know that it belongs to Nick, but they know that it's affiliated with this risk score and it's defined how that risk score is achieved. Um, It can then access certain aspects of the um, environment that these applications have built. So there's a a little mark somehow on my wallet that that then when they, someone third party goes to verify it, then it takes my wallet, pings your your system and and comes back to and says yes this this wallet is is a good wallet right so so the the passport itself is an NFT and there are different fields in it so for example your um, non rebootable identity is one field so DID and then um, uh, your AML risk score the country of your onboarding document 
Um, eventually, as I said, there will be credit information, which we are working to obfuscate exactly what the credit score is so that the application can ask a question that fits their needs and then uh, they can receive an answer, but your credit score is not posted through the yeah. chain. So do I apply with my NFT? I would apply, I would say, here's my NFT, or it would just know, hey, in this wallet, there is this passport. Yes, in this wallet, there is this passport, and you can have multiple wallets um, where you can mint uh, this NFT today. Our yeah. vision, long-term vision is that you onboard once, and you can go across different applications and also across different chains. So today we're live on Ethereum and Polygon, and we're working to expand to other chains. What are the big issues? Like I know, I know the only time I did was it called KYC was for there was a board ape thing. I think in order to be verified for other side deeds or something, right? And there was every, people were freaking out. Some people were like, "Oh my god, they're asking for this. This is totally goes against everything." And other people are like, "Like, hey, this is like a you know, this is how things are going to evolve over time." And you you you, know, you have the choice of not participating, like not sharing any information and staying fully. Can't even think of the word. The word anonymous. <laughs> anonymous, yeah. Or you can share some information and trust the trust the process, you know, and know that it's the middle ground where it may not it may be more than you wanted to share, but it's still less than you share um, at times in in your everyday life that you don't even think twice about. Right. Like, what are the what are the main issues that is it just that they're looking for like any association with illegal or blacklisted wallets or wallets that seem to be funneling money to the wrong places? Is that is that it? No. So what what Quadrat Passport ultimately is, uh, or the vision for it, is that it's your way to leverage your reputation yeah. uh, to get access to better opportunities. Right? Just, yeah. as, as you rightfully said, if you already can do things without undergoing this process on chain, then you're unlikely to um, uh, to uh, to want to yeah. um, go through extra steps, right? So it's really more focused on the future benefits that you can receive if you yeah. undergo additional steps. Yeah. And so what we think of is, yes, for example, it could be your credit reputation today. It could be other things. For example, um, we're talking to some gaming and metaverse companies who are really focused on proof of humanity aspect that the passport can provide. So their goal is to keep bots out of uh, receiving rewards meant for real human players. And also, rather than distributing a number of different rewards to one person, because you ultimately represent one identity, uh, they can actually say, okay, this is the allotted pool of rewards per player. Um, and therefore that is an interesting aspect that you may be, in, uh, that you, that may entice you to go through this onboarding. So yeah. it, it really depends on ultimately on the environment that you're trying to enter and whether or not they want some sort of proof that you're not a bot or yeah. you repay your loans in the off chain world or whatever additional data points, um, uh, may enter the passport. For instance, a lot of the financial applications are interested in adding accredited investor feature to the passport so they can create specific solutions targeting accredited investors. Do you think they should have accredited investors or they should just let people invest whatever? It seems like they set these kind of arbitrary 
numbers and say this is the this is the criteria, and it makes it hard sometimes. For, and I think that's one of the appeals, right, of blockchain is it makes it hard for people who are just getting started to be like, hey, I've got the knowledge, I've got this money, which I believe I can turn into more money, but you've set this arbitrary floor that I need to reach before you think I'm able to do this. Like especially as things advance and and you know people have so much knowledge right when they're getting started. Do you think that's fair? Right. Well, I think if we step back and think about what regulators are trying to do, they're actually trying to protect the people who think they know, but they actually <laughs> might not know. Yeah. So as we've seen in the case of Terra Luna, there are a number of people who now say, well, I put all my wealth into this particular exposure and now I don't have pension savings, you know, college yeah. savings, what have you, right? So it's a very fine balance to reach. Um, and and yes, accredited investor status or the criteria for it may be a, a little arbitrary ultimately, but it's difficult to define what, what that knowledgeable investor looks like without yeah. any criteria. So I, I, I don't envy the regulators having to think through these things, but ultimately, yes, like maybe there should be something that says, well, I understand that you don't uh, advise putting all my eggs in one basket and still I am such a fan of this particular okay. application. I'm going to go against your advice, but I take full responsibility. I don't know if that's satisfactory to the yeah. regulators ultimately, but maybe that's a solution to consider. Um, your point yeah. is valid. Um, I don't I don't think that we have a better solution just yet, but yeah. to explore. I feel like, yeah, I mean, I feel like there's dumb people with a lot of money and there's really smart people with no money, right? So it's almost <laughs> like it just needs to balance out. And there should Maybe there's some way, maybe as we get into everything, you know, more and more things being transacted on chain, it just be some formula based on your previous, like, you know, trading history and just some algorithm on like your success and how erratic you were with, you know, what percent of your wallet you put on each thing or something would be would be kind of cool. A new, like, uh, maybe your passport, maybe your passport will tell you, you know, here's, here's another, should you be trusted to, to, in, to invest would be, would be kind of fun. Right. Maybe there's like an exam you take or, uh, uh, or, um, something that could be also achieved on chain, like your collective holdings could be examined and you get the score, yeah. like diversification score or something. I, I mean, someone who, yeah, someone who, who, who earns their way up from like half an ETH to like 20 ETH is much more impressive than someone who dropped a hundred ETH and turned it into 20, you know, <laughs> like it's, uh, <laughs> it's funny. but in, but in the current scenario, the person, you know, the person who had more and lost it would be, would, would be deemed, um, smarter with their money, which, which I guess in a way it, it'll balance over time. But yeah. What do you think, um, what percent of regulations do you think are like, Net positive. Mm. <laughs> That's a tough question. I think again, it's it's a difficult job for the regulators to create the frameworks that support well-functioning financial systems without overshooting in one direction or the other, right? So, um, it, and especially when many constituents are involved, you know, with different perspectives and agendas, it's just not not a very streamlined process, I would guess. Yeah. Uh, but 
we do hope that um, the likes of um, Blockchain Association, which is lobbying on behalf of the digital assets industry, are having productive dialogues, uh, discussions with a number of different regulators and represent the industry well in those conversations. And uh, full disclosure, Kristen Smith is our advisor. So I just wanted to put it out there in case there is any potential conflict. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think the... um like, how long is the timeline for the masses to feel comfortable onboarding? Like, I mean, my, like, the project I'm working on, even just for, you know, fantasy sports, right? It's hard. I get, I've got a group of high school friends that played fantasy football with them for, I don't even know, 20 years. And it's really, you know, I said, hey, let's try this new league. And it was very hard to get them to understand how to create a wallet and want to go through the time and effort and do it. Obviously, that's not very invasive, right? Like, a passport is a little bit, feels a little bit riskier. Like, you know, are we a year away, five years away from everyone being like, oh, I don't even think about it. Like, I just, I trust this so much that it's just, you know, the same way we put a credit card in somewhere, we don't even think about it or... Yes, that you really hit the nail on the head. It is quite complex today for somebody who is not very technologically savvy to set up their own wallet and remember the passphrase and everything like that. So I think that challenge is perhaps on the one hand what you mentioned invasiveness and like you know people's ability to feel comfortable with the process but two is really um it is quite difficult technologically and so what we foresee is that at some point there might be this centralized companies still that sort of obfuscate the difficulty of technology behind it you know so today we go on the internet and we don't really think about how that network is connected and how we get access to all these different applications. We just log in and we browse, right? So it's something similar in the Web3 world where you come in, you exchange your fiat for digital assets, and then you decide what you want to do with them by maybe just clicking a button somewhere yeah. um, in the application. What about the, what about the passphrase? Like it seems it's so stressful at first, right? Well, at least for me, the first time I went through, because I'm just used to being prompted to remember things that I don't need to remember, right? So the first time I went through, it said, hey, write down these 12 words, don't lose them anywhere. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm just used to ignoring those warnings, right? So I didn't write them down. <laughs> so I created a wallet and quickly realized, okay, I can't get in. So I have to create another wallet. And at that point, I wrote it down, but it's still stressful. It's like even your phone each time, so, or my, my phone each time, in Coinbase, it says, do you want to save this to the cloud? And it's like, shit, I think I was told never to save this to the cloud. No, <laughs> it's just written on a piece of paper somewhere. Would, would the wallet help? Like in the future, if, my, if I have validated myself through a passport that's attached to a wallet, could I, not, could I now use the wallet to get back, I mean, the passport to get back into the wallet if I lost my passphrase? That's an interesting use case. To be honest, we haven't considered that functionality of the uh, passport just yet, but we have considered that if you are, if you somehow misplace your uh, passphrase and you lose control of your wallet, you can burn your passport so that uh, that uh, you know it's not uh, it's not yeah. uh, allowing somebody else to get into the ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, I think if a passport can get me into a country, I think this. <laughs> I think the digital passport should get me get me into my wallet. So what's what's next? Like, where do you see, like, you know, how much time are you spent focusing on, like, the product today versus thinking about what the product will be in a year, two years, three years? Like, how do you how do you balance that? 
Right. So there are a couple of things. Actually, one is the what the product is, and two is what the ecosystem is. Like you said, ultimately, Passport is only as good as the destinations it unlocks. And so I spend a lot of my time speaking to potential partners um, who could use the Passport to create new, more nuanced use cases, or they already see a need in their um application today to be able to sort of filter the users by by some measure. And so I do spend a lot of time uh, sort of externally uh, with potential partners. And then um, we also focus on adding the features into the passport. So ultimately, again, we start with identity, but the vision is to expand it to reputation across different uh, fields, such as credit and um yeah. And status, which we can debate what that credit <laughs> investor status is today. And then also uh, deploying it across different chains, right? So we really want to, on the one hand, make it very easy for the partners to integrate. So it's just a couple of lines into their smart contracts, which can uh, which can enable them to query the passport. But we also want the ultimate user experience to be very um, streamlined. And so the idea is that you go uh, through this process once and then you get your passport and you can mint it on different chains and you can use it for different applications. So also working uh, with various chains on deploying there is our priority. So as the passport holder, am I... Is it more like a, um, you know, the credit card model where I'm, I just, I, over time I realize, oh, my passport has functionality. I go to this place and I say, oh, my passport has a functionality here. Or is it more like an app store where I say, here's my passport. And then I go, oh, here's all these use, here's all these things that I can do with it and discover that way. Which, which way will it work? As I said, today you can go to Quadrato website and mint your passport. But what we enable is actually the partners keeping the user in their own environment. So let's say you come to an application and you want to enter and they ask you, do you have a passport? Mm. Uh, and then if you have a passport, then they query it. And if you don't, they, they take you through the onboarding process and their um, uh, sort of in their app. Yeah. And then you're there. You can interact with the app you came into the, uh, to yeah. interact with. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like uh, when you go to a site and it says, do you want to register or do you want to log in with your Google exactly. account? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. What do you think um, you said during quarantine, during COVID, was when you started looking for something different? And I think like, I mean, COVID was obviously, you know, terrible. We would never want it to happen again, had such a negative impact on the world. But it was a time where a lot of people looked around and thought, huh, like this is a such a dramatic shift in my day-to-day life. What do I want to do? What changes do I want to make? Right? Like I moved, a lot of people moved, a lot of people did, you know, change their work, et cetera. Do you think you would have um, gone down this path? You know, like, do you, do you think if, if there was no quarantine, would you still be happily, you know, working and not have kind of co-founded this company or, or were you always going to do that? Well, it's very hard to think about what ifs, right? As I said, even when I consciously made a decision to move to a new country, I couldn't have anticipated, you know, the the time that I'd spend there or the things I would end up doing. Um, in fact, if somebody told me when I was, let's call it five years old in Soviet Union, that 
I'd make this um, world tour <laughs> happen, it would be very difficult for me to believe. So my approach is really staying open to opportunities and really um, seeing where I can add the most value um, and considering what, what, you know, the holistic scenario is at the point of the decision. It's very difficult, I find, to plan five, 10 years out and, and especially consider what if scenarios. Yeah. I think that might be the mathematical side. Maybe because I don't, maybe because I don't have the mathematical side. I'm always, I'm always uh, contemplating the what ifs. What about, what about work? You said uh, your, your team works remotely. Do you think remote is the future? Well, I, I think there is still no, um, a perfect substitute for in-person interactions. So we try very hard to get together uh, periodically. In fact, this week, uh, most of the team is here in Southern California. We do have an office in Los Angeles and we have team members all over the U.S. and, and in London. Um, so we do uh, make it a priority to still get together. And of course, technologies such as Zoom and, you know, what, what have you, other, uh, other video apps um, really help staying in touch. Uh, we are constantly on Discord. Um, so it's, it's continued communication, but we do value in-person time as well. Do you think you'd ever hire someone without knowing who they were just based on their Quadrata passport? <laughs> well, um, that's an interesting question because there are different tax implications, right? When you hire somebody. So there are additional things that would need to be checked. But as I said, we stay open to the opportunities and yeah. consider the needs um, of the ecosystem. And we wouldn't say no before giving it a thorough consideration. Nice. Yeah, and I think that was a it was a fun conversation. I think I could ask I could ask a million of these random questions, but <laughs> but, I, but I think um, is there anything else? Uh, any other message you wanted to get out about the, the company or or anything else as we as we as we wrap it up? Well, I wanted to thank you for the opportunity to tell my story today. It's been really fun, and actually, I'm not used to podcasting at all. So this is my first sort of one-on-one -on -one foray into it. And I, I really appreciate you making it easy and interactive. And with respect to Quadrata, as I said, uh, there isn't really a standard today in digital identity. And we hope to set a standard, if not the, st the standard. So I would encourage uh, developers who are looking for various parts of identity or reputation solutions to get in contact and uh, we'd be very happy to to walk you through our process and see if there is an opportunity to collaborate awesome it all it, i'm like teetering on the edge because it made me think of another question but i'm like we're wrapping this up but okay so <laughs> what how do, as this evolves when you said um a standard versus the standard like how you know, do you think it will be a bunch of standards across a bunch? You know, there's a bunch of different um, chains. There's a bunch of bunch of different layers. There's a bunch of different things. Like I would imagine, for the foreseeable future, it'll be really hard for someone to be the one. Is everyone aiming to be the one, or are people building towards an environment where there'll be, you know, there'll be a lot of collaboration and and they'll be okay with there being a lot of competing products? You know, the best reference. I can think of today as the real world. Um, and maybe it is because I, I sort of uh, 
don't have as much of the creative side to me as some of my peers. Uh, and so in the real world, what I see is that there are a few passport issuing authorities which um, whose passports are accepted by most destinations globally, most countries in this case, right? And so I think it's very likely that we'll reach a similar equilibrium in the Web3 world where I'll be where where there'll be a few countries or <laughs> passport issuing um apps that uh, that are broadly accepted uh, in the rest of the uh, Web3. And then there'll be some which actually do need additional verifications or quote-unquote visas uh, to enter certain environments. So that's, that's really the environment that we're working towards. And uh, we do think that we have a lot of uh, positive um, tailwinds uh, going uh, accompanying us as we started our journey quite a bit ago. And we already have uh, amazing partners uh, not all of them are public, but um, TrueFi, Identify, Freak Echo, uh, some of the ones that I can name today. Awesome. I think it's interesting. I think just the passport terminology and the analogies you can come up with leads to so many creative ways to present what you're doing to the general public in a way that's easy for people like me to understand. Like, oh, I get it. So it's um, no, it's an exciting, exciting space. Uh, where can people follow you, uh, get more information? Quadrata.com is a good place to start. Uh, we're also on Twitter, LinkedIn. That's my side mission to bring LinkedIn into Web3. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Telegram, of course. So uh, you can find us in all kinds of places. Awesome. Well, thanks, everyone listening. Uh, if you get a chance, um, rate, share, subscribe. There's a lot of good info in this episode. I think a lot of people would, would benefit from listening to it. And uh, yeah, Lisa, thanks for coming on. Thanks for making the time for us. Enjoyed the conversation and looking forward to getting my passport. Thank you very much, Nick. Awesome.